Welcome to Northern Nevada Green Living Podcast, where we support your quest for a happier, healthier, planet-friendly life that supports you, your family, and community. We share local information, resources, and support, and opportunities to volunteer for projects that help clean, protect, and repair the environment. This episode is a bonus episode from another show. It includes an interview of a Northern Nevada local who is taking green action through their vocation, volunteer work, or hobby. These stories are interesting and informational and are a great way to get to know our local community better. Today on our podcast, we have someone who started a nonprofit, which is an urban homestead and learning space dedicated to service, sustainability, and community uplift. Their work is guided by principles of permaculture and integral nonviolence. We are talking with Kyle Isaacson, the co-director of Be the Change Project. Kyle and his wife, Katie, started Be the Change in Reno, Nevada in 2011. Kyle spends his time building soil, creating community initiatives, and teaching natural building. He's currently building a conventional green home, which will become part of a community land trust as permanently affordable housing. Kyle is a former science teacher and school designer, builder, and political organizer who grew up on a peninsula on Long Island. Welcome, Kyle. We are so excited to speak with you and find out more about your green action in the Northern Nevada community. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks for having me. So using the metaphor of a garden, what in your past helped create the right conditions for you to want to start taking some kind of planet-friendly green action? Well, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a really beautiful spot, um, surrounded by water with a nature preserve behind my house. So um, I got had the opportunity to roam around a lot as a kid and pick things up on the beach and really get into nature in a really personal way. Um, I also was really close to my grandfather who uh, lived in the same town and he had a huge garden and so he was always growing and he and my grandmother were making wonderful foods. So that that connection to the soil was very, very relevant. And then uh, he also, um, back in the 50s, he bought a little bit of land in Vermont and built his own house there. And so I would get to go up there a lot as a kid. It kind of became this family retreat center and spent a lot of time roaming around in the woods and, and talking to him about, about nature and animals and all that kind of stuff. So those were very fertile and important components of my childhood. And then as I, as I grew up, uh, I, I was always very mindful of kind of our impact on the planet. And I remember in fifth grade for a cartoon for the little class newspaper we had, I drew like this, this world kind of cracking apart, you know, <laughs> due to all the, the stuff we were doing. And that was back in 1985. Uh, so yeah, so it's, 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 and then I did, I did um, biology. I was a biology major in college uh, and took a lot of environmental science classes. So all those together just kind of, you know, kept me going in the direction for, for trying to create uh, a more, a more beautiful world. That's that's awesome. What um what an amazing opportunity just to be around nature and have those opportunities. What eventually helped you to decide what you wanted to do? Like I know you started as a as a teacher. Um, what inspired you to venture off after teaching? Yeah, the, the, I got into teaching. My, my dad was a teacher, but when I told him I was thinking about being a teacher, he said, "Oh, I wouldn't do it again." <laughs> um, but I, I thought it was a good way to kind of give back to the community and, and give back to um, the world just because I had been so lucky growing up. 
Um, but after doing that for, I think it was about seven years and starting a middle school uh, in a charter school, um, it, it just, it was too confining for me. And I realized as I got to know my own personality more and had some more experience as a professional, both teaching and then political organizing, things like that, that I, I really wanted to go off kind of, I uh, wanted to, I guess, be my own boss is not exactly the right word for it, but we wanted more independence and in kind of what we chose to do and how we chose to spend our time and also more creativity to allow us to, to create a life and a lifestyle that was in alignment with our values. And so uh, my wife and I left teaching in 2007, 2008, and then were really influenced by living at the River School, which is a, a, a little community here in Reno, where we learned about uh, more about gardening and permaculture and natural building. And then in 2009, we, we decided to leave Reno for a while, not knowing if we'd ever come back actually and learn more about community and living in community and social justice stuff, things like that. Just feeling a real calling that we, we needed to do more to kind of figure out what we could do in the world and how we could be most effective. So where did you, where did you go when you left uh, Reno? Yeah, we went to Oregon. Well, first thing we did was we, tra we traveled around for several months with our two young sons. They were, I think, uh, four and one at the time. So it was, it was challenging. <laughs> but we traveled around the country for several months. Uh, we went to Northeast Missouri to see some intentional communities there. We went to Wisconsin, Iowa for a little bit. And previously, we had visited different communities in Tennessee and Virginia yeah, many different places. And, and But Oregon, we wound up uh, heading, circling back to Oregon where we met Conrad Rogmans, who runs House Alive, which is a natural building outfit. And we wound up living on his land for six months and doing a, uh, an apprenticeship in natural building. Conrad and his, his ex-wife, Kalika, became really good friends of ours and, and really good mentors as well. So um, from there, we went to Northeast Missouri and lived at a place called the Possibility Alliance that was run by... Uh, uh, Ethan, oh gosh, I'm forgetting his last name, but Ethan and Sarah. Uh, so we stayed there for about seven months and actually built a big cabin. Uh, I can't remember where else. Traveled around a little more, but eventually came back to Reno, decided, you know what, this is, Reno is our home and we want to go back to Reno and kind of learn, take what we learned on the road and from the different experiences we had and put it to use in a new project uh, in Reno. So is that when you started the Be the Change project? Yeah, we, we got back in uh, early, maybe it was like March 2011, and we knew we wanted to get a little piece of property kind of within the city, and we didn't have any money. We found a place, and the market was really crummy here at that point, so houses were cheap, and we found this uh, kind of crumbling down house on a half acre, just two miles outside of downtown, and it was we were able to get it for forty thousand um, dollars, and all that money we were able to raise from friends and supporters. We we kind of put out our vision for what we we're hoping to create, and close to two hundred people contributed, uh, allowing us to buy the property. And that was huge because now we have no mortgage and we don't pay rent, so it really frees us up to kind of do what we feel called to do, you know, in the neighborhood and in, with gardens and with teaching and. and uh, actions, things like that. That's great. So when you started in the very beginning, it helped you kind of feel encouraged, like kind of get things going, like some of your beginning projects. Well, right away, 
like I said, we had a, we had a lot of help in uh, financial help in getting the place, but then also so many people would come by and uh, drop off materials because the house is just a disaster or lend their expertise or come by for a work day. Um, we had one friend who camped out in our front yard for six weeks and just helped us rebuild this, this, you know, terrible house. <laughs> um, so the, the, initially those things were just, that, that's what we were doing for the first six, eight months, just kind of trying to get our feet under the, underneath ourselves and, and make this house livable. And right away, Katie started gardening. Uh, I think we moved in August 1st. We moved into a shed on the property on August 1st that we had fixed up with our two kids. The house was unlivable. And then um, right away, she started uh, building soil and, and, and planting, planting things out in the backyard and starting compost, that kind of stuff. And at the same time we were doing that, we were kind of tearing out the house and rebuilding it with whatever we could find from friends and neighbors. Again, we had very little money to make it livable. And then uh, finally on October 31st on Halloween, we were able to move in. That's great. From the beginning, what was your first intention to, once you had a livable home and you'd start to started the gardens, what were you, your intention to kind of like move forward and, and interact with the community and, and start, start your mission? Yeah. So we, we always wanted our, our little urban homestead to be a, a demonstration site to show principles of permaculture in action, to show what can be done on very little income, very little money, uh, to show what can be done through sharing and borrowing and, and scavenging materials and reusing and repurposing things. And since the beginning, we've looked at it as an experiment. And that just using that language has allowed us to fail a lot, but not get overwhelmed by the failures. Like we, you know, we tried out different systems of gray water. We tried out different uh, ways of composting or different ways of gardening, you know, all that kind of stuff, different ways of heating water, solar heating, things like that. And a lot of those, you know, were disasters if, <laughs> to one degree or another, but, but that was okay. Cause we were trying to figure out what worked and we we're trying to figure out how we could live joyfully and simply at the same time without making a big impact, a negative impact on the, on the land or the environment. And while also being able to get back a lot, uh, to the land and to the creatures that are around us, but also to the human community. And so I can't remember the, you know, the initial kind of things that we did exactly, but, you know, right away we, we realized there's a, there's a giant wall, a concrete wall behind our house across the road that would get tagged all the time. So that was a pretty early project. I thought, well, why don't we make a mural over there? And we were able to get some money from the city and collaborate with the apartment uh, buildings over there get some local artists and kids involved. And instead of now, this is you know, nine years on, instead of there being uh, you know, gang graffiti there every week that just gets covered over by the city, there's, there's a beautiful mural. And, that, um, and we just actually finished, I think, the sixth one this last fall, the sixth one that we've done in, you know, along that road, that same kind of stretch of road. So we were pretty clear that we wanted to, we wanted to do a lot at, at kind of the hyper-local level, like right here in our neighborhood. Um, it's a very socioeconomically diverse neighborhood with, you know, with its own set of problems. Uh, so we knew we wanted to do things here, and then we also knew that we wanted to impact the city as well. And that you know, many projects have, have evolved since then. That's very interesting. Do you ever have, like, times when you had got started and you felt like you weren't able to get your, the word out there or you were, or hurdles making it hard to spread your message? 
<laughs> yeah, well, having two young kids, um, it, living without electricity, without fossil fuels, on very little money, uh, does provide some hurdles. And one of the one, well, just a funny one, was that my uh, my wife was in charge of laundry, and and I was in charge of dishes and a lot of the cooking. And I remember her trying to wash, hand wash uh, cloth diapers in cold water outside in the winter. Oh. <laughs> and that was a, uh, I don't recommend that. <laughs> so we have a lot of little moments like that of trying to figure out, okay, these are the parameters we want to live within. You know, how do we do it well? Um, so the, <laughs> there were lots of little failures like that. But, but an ongoing, I guess it'd be a, like a, a tension um, with what we do and how we do things is that we, we, we've never created like a, a volunteer, a regular volunteer program, not really like a kind of an official nonprofit that has, you know, every Saturday we'll be out here doing this on this community garden or, uh, you know, we're, we're just, a, we're just doing our own little thing in a lot of ways. And so that's both great, but it's also uh, a handicap when, when it comes time to, when we do want to do a project and do, when we do need more support. And I guess a part of that is me not wanting to create uh, not wanting to spend a lot of time like on a computer to create that infrastructure. Like, a lot of people have said, well, why don't you guys get some AmeriCorps volunteers? I was like, well, if we do that, then, you know, there's all this reporting that has to happen. There's all this paperwork. And then we have to, you know, raise money for this and that. And then we have to manage other people. Whereas we've, right now, we've kind of settled into this, this design that allows us to have a lot of flexibility and a lot of creative control over our time while still having a lot of success when it comes time that, that we do want to do a bigger project or we are inspired by something, we have slowly developed, this is even before the Be The Change project, but a, a, a community of people that kind of know what we're about, that we've shared our, our goals and our values and that show up time and again when, when we do ask for help. Yeah. So um, what are some of the ways that you uh, were able to interact with community? Like how did community find out who you were and what you were doing and what you were about. Right, so we had done political organizing in Reno and also uh, had been teachers and started this middle, middle school program with an existing charter school. So we knew a lot of people that way. The foundation continues actually to be the foundation of the, the people we know and work with. And since then, we've, you know, we've met a lot of kind of the local farmers. Oh, and then also living at the river school. That was a whole different subset of the population, people that were more interested in permaculture and, and gardening and, and things like that. So it's almost like there was, you're a part of a community that, that is within a community. Yeah. And we, we, we bounce around a lot. So we've done things like we had an opportunity to distribute like 15,000 articles of Patagonia clothing over a couple of few years. And that just came about because someone we know uh, kind of was in, in that department of Patagonia and was looking for a, you know, a trusted group to kind of distribute these, these, this clothing. And so we said, yeah, we can do that. And so that was great because it got us, it was a little more direct service. Like, you know, here's some amazing clothing and let's bring it to the women's shelter. Or let's bring it to the, um, you know, the foster kids place or give it to the veterans, things like that. And those, those things happen. One of the things I love about my life is that that'll happen and we'll get really engaged with it for a while. And then it'll, you know, it'll change. Or it'll go away. We did some music events in our little park down the road. And that was interacting with the city in different ways and also with our, our neighborhood, like going out door to door, sharing with people like, hey, we're going to have these free concerts in July. You know, why don't you come out? There's a lot of, a lot of different communities that we, we tap into. With the permaculture stuff, 
we, you know, if there's something cool that we're, that we're doing that we'd like to share, we'll give a, uh, shoot an email over to the permaculture group and say, hey, you guys want to do a work bee over here? We're going to put in this little pond or we're going to build the foundation for an earthen, earthen house. Um, and then there's kind of a whole social justice side too. And these things are all interconnected, but we were able to go out to Standing Rock in 2016 with a small caravan and, and a, a lot of support and loading up a big truck full of supplies. And so it, we, we kind of mix and mingle with different communities um, depending on, on, you know, what's going on, like what the need is or what, what's piquing our interest, yeah, where we feel called to move. But it's, like I said in the introduction, we, we work in the realms of sustainability and service and community uplift, but they're all interconnected and they're all related. And if the, underarch, if the overarching goal is to be part of creating a more, a more just and beautiful world, I mean, that's, you know, those all fall within those parameters. That's really amazing, all the things that you've done. What are some additional ways you've allowed the community to get to know you better? Um, well, I think one of the things is we, we've, we've done quite a few tours of our place and, and had some open houses and things like that. So a lot of people come over and they, they get to see an alternative, like, oh, wow, this is an electricity-free and fossil fuel-free homestead, and it's working. <laughs> you know, these, this is a family of four living you know, in the city, alternatively enough that we're having you know, a, a limited environmental impact, but a very positive kind of social and communal impact. Um, so I think, I think people get a lot of ideas and a lot of inspiration in, in that sense. I also think some of the, some of the projects we've done, like the Reno Rot Riders, which was Reno's first uh, food waste collection and composting service. Uh, we started that in 2015. I, I got excited about composting. It also just saw that, that, you know, Reno's not, Reno had no food waste collection business and all this stuff is just going to landfill where it creates methane and other greenhouse gases. So why not divert it and, and use it for compost? And it's not a new idea, but it's just, it was new to Reno. And so we were able to do that for a couple of years and, and reach out and kind of get that in the radar of the community. And then my wife and I are both very good starters. And that, that's one of the things we learned about ourselves years ago is that we're really good at starting. We're kind of like idea people. And so with the Rot Riders, after two years, we decided to sell it. And we were able to sell it to someone who has grown the business something like 500% in the last couple of years. I mean, he's just an, done an amazing job. And another example of that is the Reno Garlic Fest. We, we started that and we wanted to um, use garlic as a means to, sh to it, as kind of like a gateway crop. Um, garlic grows really well here. It's really easy to grow. It grows in a large part over the winter. You harvest it in, in like June. Um, and it's, it uses not a whole lot of water and people love it. And it's very cross-cultural. So we thought, why don't we, why don't we do a garlic fest here to support local organic food and farmers? And my wife grows a ton of garlic for it now too. And so we, we ran that, I think just the first year we did it ourselves and then teamed up with, the, with Reno Food Systems the second year and they've, they've taken it over. So that's been a wonderful uh, experience as well. Now they, that's one of their kind of premier, premier things that they do. Uh, and they've got a very capable staff and group of people and, and uh, who, can, who can help it grow, just like the Reno Rot Riders, uh, take it to kind of the next level. That's great. Uh, what are some of the other ways you've used activities to educate people in the community? Yeah, that's an essential part. I mean, everything we do involves involves teaching and, and sharing that. Um, 
yeah, when, when I was doing the Rot Riders, I was speaking at, at you know, very often at places. I was, uh, you know, we were posting things around town, um, doing radio shows, things like that. There were articles in the local weeklies. Uh, same thing with Garlic Fest. Like, you know, this is this is why we're doing it. This is what we're doing it. Here's why you should come and support it. Teaching is, is a huge part of what we do. We called our project the Be the Change Project because we feel that individuals have duty and a, re- a responsibility to take on confronting what they see as wrong in the world. But in part of that is sharing what we do. So, you know, be the change you want to see in the world and, and bring it to others. You know, we, a lot of times we, we push the edges here and there with, with certain things, but we also, we also don't want to alienate people. Uh, so how can people be part of the solution as well? And, and what your, your being the change in the world is going to look different than my being the change in the world uh, based on who I am and what I do well. And that, that's something we try to share with people as well is that, you know, if you've got certain skills, like maybe living in an urban homestead and raising animals and gardens, it's not, it's not for you. But how do you fit into the bigger pattern? You know, what can you contribute? And for myself, I'm a, I'm a white, you know, pretty well-educated male who was raised with all these benefits in the world. I like to say I was born on third base. So I, I do believe that it is my responsibility to do something, to contribute something in the best way that I can, uh, you know, back to, to leaving this place better than we found it. That's beautifully said. Do you ever have an issue of staying engaged with community when you feel maybe a little frustrated or you feel like there really needs to be a, a sense of urgency? What would you like to say to some of our younger generations facing a lot of frustrations with the world not taking enough action to fix the planet? Yeah, I, yeah, we have our ups and downs, absolutely. Um, and it's hard not to get overwhelmed, you know. When you when you start to look into these things and you start to care about things, it's it's hard not to feel uh, like it's a lost cause or there's no hope. But what keeps me going and keeps me moving forward is that I always feel there's something I can do that I can contribute. And like I said before, that it's just what is that what is that thing you can do? I don't just mean like bring your um, you know your recyclable bag to the supermarket. Push the edges, go farther, uh, leap a little bit. That's something else share a lot. Is is you know you got to jump in, you got to jump out. Yeah, I get discouraged a lot. I don't know if <laughs> you know I, I I'm sometimes very pessimistic about the kind of the world's future, but there's no way I'm gonna I'm gonna stop doing what I'm doing. I believe it's a I have a a, a moral obligation to to try to do my part. We've got two young boys and they're growing into the coming into the world now. One's fourteen, the other one's eleven. And, you know, we talk about this stuff. We talk about permaculture. We talk about the challenges that are facing our planet. We talk about how hard it is and how, what the scale is. And I know that, you know, one family living off the grid inside of the city of Reno is not going to make one speck of difference. But I do know that if a lot of us are doing that, that that does make a difference. And I like to share that there's this uh, research done by Erica Chenoweth out of the University of Colorado, I think it was, or University of Denver, and she, she was challenged by someone who said, uh, what do you think, where do you think more change has happened through, through violent means or through nonviolent means, like essentially through war or through, you know, direct action or, or, you know, uprisings of people, nonviolent uprisings, things like that. And she just assumed like, well, of course, more change happens through, through violence and through war. And then she started to research it and she found out that not only was that wrong, but that it only takes about 3% of the people in any kind of given population to, to create great change. 
So that means if, if there's only 3% of the population is really engaged with you know, fighting climate change or you know, shutting something down, that can tip the scales. And that's not a lot of people. So things like that always give me hope. And that, you know, whether it's a group of students or, or a group of old people, um, everybody can contribute. And if we can share some of the same language and, and uh, recognize that we're, a lot of us are working towards the same general good, whether you know, the, the links and the interconnectedness of environmentalism and social justice and you know, healthy families, things like that, they're all linked. So the more we can, we can figure out our role, the more we can work together, the more of a chance we have of tipping these scales towards that more just and beautiful world. Beautiful. Well said. Um, time that we're in right now, the times that we're in right now, COVID-19 and the virus and all of the changes that were going on in the world right now and the tail end of March 2020, what would you want your message to be? We're, one of the things we try to do is kind of tighten our circles. Like, uh, who, who do we get our food from? Uh, who do we work with? Who do we have relationships with? And it's, it's making these smaller and smaller circles. And it's not, not to be an isolationist or something, but it's to have relationships. And it's a lot easier to not care about a worker in Bangladesh, you know, if I don't, if I don't see the working conditions, right? I don't know them. Uh, it's, a lot, it's a lot harder to not care about your neighbor um, when you see them struggling. So one of the things I hope might come out of this is, is a, again, a, a greater appreciation for, for localism and for creating and nurturing relationships of those around us, um, people uh, and planet. But if, if, if this nonsense and this, this calamity could, can bring us closer to the earth and realize that we're interconnected and, and realize that, you know, because we're treat, mistreating animals, that it's more likely these viruses will spread from one species to another. You know, if, if, if there's a greater awareness and followed by greater action, um, that, that would be a really good thing. If you could say anything to government, what would you like to say in terms of, you know, really looking at policies for a new green city paradigm? We interact with the local government uh, semi-regularly. We, we started a climate action initiative in 2015 uh, just, just because I went to this, some of the council members and said, you know, what is Reno doing about climate change? And the answer was, well, nothing. Um, and since then, they've, they've now got a, a city manager, or a, what do you call it, a sustainability manager, uh, who's taken some of the stuff we put together and, and kind of run with it. The Green New Deal came out, whatever it was, a year or two ago, a couple of years, I guess. And I love the idea of, you know, a generation taking on these big problems. When we, we look back at, at kind of the Depression era and, and people we have these stories or these models of like the, you know, public works and this kind of mobilization by the United States to, to get out of the great depression. And there was a lot of, uh, a lot of engagement by the federal government and a lot of, a lot of uh, working together. It's, I would love if we could have, I mean, how exciting would it be if, if from the top and then from all the cities said, Hey, we're going to tackle this climate change thing. And we're going to look at like a book like drawdown, which has, whatever it is, 81 kind of areas to look at and say, hey, these are concrete things we can do. 
that would be so exciting to see to see people, you know, thousands, millions of people all working on that. To see like AmeriCorps programs dedicated to that. To see roadsides being planted with edible foods. To see habitat being improved in the neighborhoods. Like we do some of that here with with just giving out plants and and helping people get gardens started and things like that. But oh my gosh, wouldn't that be fun? Like, wouldn't that be an amazing thing to see millions of people mobilized to, to heal? And, and obviously through any kind of healing that we do at the big scale, that reverberates through every individual, it reverberates back into every community. You know, we talk, it, it's abundance. It's not just abundance of like, hey, this is rich soil. It's abundance of love. It's abundance of connection. It's, you know, it's not complicated stuff. There's, um, there's a guy named uh, Dr. Ariaratni, Dr. A., in Sri Lanka, and he's a contemporary of Gandhi, and he must be 85 or 86 by now. Uh, he, through the last 40 years or so, Sri Lanka had a long-running civil war, and he has been able to you know, build many bridges between the different ethnic groups. He has a story of um, working with this village. The village needed a road, and it was a long road, and so one of the ways to build a road is to get a whole bunch of machinery and, and hire some company and dig out a road. What they did instead was got 15,000 people together from all walks of life, from different ethnic groups, and they built a road. And that took, I don't know how many weeks it took, but it was physical labor. It was people working side by side. It was people sharing meals. I mean, imagine, imagine if we had 15,000 people here in Reno working on habitat improvement for a couple of weeks or building soil for a couple of weeks or, you know, pick a, pick a project. <laughs> the, 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 the positive feedback loops that would form out of that would be amazing and, and very deep, um, deeply meaningful. Yes, that would truly be amazing. So if you were to take all of your ideas and all of your experience and your wisdom, and they were all wrapped up into new seeds of potential action for other cities, what advice would you give to someone that is considering doing this? It's very helpful to know yourself. Not an easy thing to do, but as you know, my, my wife is my you know, greatest partner and the two of us working together, she's able to help me figure out what I'm good at and, I'm, and likewise with her and uh, just that kind of personal development. Like, what are my triggers? What are my shadows? What do I do well? <laughs> what should I stay away from? You know, those, those things are not easy to do, but uh, it just makes you all the more effective when you're going about things. You know, what do you feel passionate about? Where are your skills? And how can they, how can they, this, what Joanna Macy calls a great turning? You know, how do they fit into that? And then along with that, and this is not trivial, but it's, it's to leap. If you're somebody like me who's who's quite privileged, who has a you know had an easy childhood, a loving family, leap, <laughs> leap. I think it was Rumi who said, "Leap and you will be given wings." So, what's something you think you can do? How big can that be? And and what do you need to make make it happen? Like the things that a lot of the things that we've done are are not new. They're not new ideas, but they didn't exist here in Reno. And so we've we connect with a lot of people around the country. We we kind of stay abreast of cool things that are going on or, you know, what are the solutions that people are doing and then think about what can be done here. You know, what do we have the capacity to do? You know, there, there's boldness to it. And, and that's also inspiring. Like I know when I do that, it's inspiring to myself, but it's also inspiring to others. Like, hey, we can, we can do this. We can do this better. We can do it differently. You know, who's with me. <laughs> and I think I've been surprised by 
by who's shown up or, or how things have worked. It's not trivial because it's very easy to just get stuck in our, the momentum of our culture of, you know, what's the career you're going to do? How are you going to pay your bills? You know, don't you need your own, whatever, washing machine and this and that, and the other thing. And that's, those are incredibly powerful uh, forces out there that are hard to buck against. But, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to make real progress and find the real solutions, then we have to confront, confront those things. So, so that's why, uh, yeah, leap. <laughs> um, if you were to recommend a book or a website or, or film that has been really particularly helpful or, or informative, do you have one to recommend? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Drawdown is, is um, a very good one. I think um, one of my favorite, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll say a few. There's uh, Small is Beautiful. Uh, by E.F. Schumacher from the 70s. It's um, economics. The subtitle is Economics as if People Mattered. There's a pattern language from the late 70s as well, which is more about design, but it's also really about quality living. Uh, that, that one's been really influential. There's been, uh, we've, gosh, a lot of uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, a lot of his books and speeches, um, Gandhi's autobiography, Joanna Macy, work by Joanna Macy and books by Joanna Macy, very significant. Jim Merkel wrote a book called Radical Simplicity that years ago was very, very important for us. Uh, and part of that book, he borrows from uh, another book called Your Money or Your Life. And there's one section that, in his book and that book as well that um, has you look at all the money you're spending, kind of has it, you know, what's going in, what's, what's, what's going out, what's coming in, and then asking how does it align with your values? And that was really big for us when we were kind of trying to get off the, uh, you know, the normal, the normal path. Um, So those might be good places to start. And do you have any um, upcoming events or projects that you would like to share with others? They're all canceled. (laughs) Everything's canceled. (laughs) What the thing that's taking my time right now is we're building this, this new uh, green conventional house. And so that's, that's what I'm doing, staying busy. It's, it's just, just put that thing together and, and yeah, but not, nothing, uh, nothing anybody can help with right now though. Okay. And how would you like people to, to con- contact you? Yeah. Email is best. Kisaacson at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Northern Nevada Green Living Podcast. We encourage you to subscribe to this show so we can send you monthly episodes and keep you up to date on opportunities for eco-friendly living in Northern Nevada. For now, please take good care of you and yours, stay well, and help us all make this a kinder, healthier, and greener community for all.